0: Welcome to A World Where Living Works. Stories of science and survival. Bringing together our heads and our hearts to build a suicide safer world. Talking openly about suicide is so important, but we also recognise that listening to this series may bring up some tough emotions. If so, please talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you are feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention.
1: You're listening to A World Where Living Works, and I'm your host, Kim Borodal. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of the beautiful lands, wherever you're listening. I'd also like to acknowledge everyone out there who has been impacted by suicide, acknowledging the pain it brings to our lives, and the desire to make positive change for us all to live well. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Zach Seidler. Zach is a clinical psychologist, researcher, and leading men's mental health expert. He currently holds dual roles as Director of Mental Health Training at Movember, and Research Fellow with Origin at University of Melbourne. Zach has dedicated his academic and professional career towards further understanding men's mental health and masculinity. His ultimate goal is to help reduce the staggering rate of male suicide worldwide. Now, on his website, Zach says, if you meet him for a beer, don't get him started on gender politics. We'll see how it goes today. Welcome, Zach. Thanks a lot, Kim. It might be good to start by just giving a bit of context of when it comes to men and And suicide what the latest research says or why there's such a worrying number of men dying by suicide?
2: I guess there are two questions I'll start with where we're at when it comes to male suicide in this country specifically Uh, you know a fortnight ago we went from the data showing us that for the past couple of years we've been losing six men a day to suicide in, in Australia and now as of two weeks ago it's now seven so we had 2502 men take their lives in 2019 which is the highest it's been in a decade and this is despite the fact that I've I've been around the traps for a couple of years now and seeing the huge boom in this discussion the fact that I can get op-eds into major newspapers the fact that I can you know show up at corporate events and talk about male suicide shows how much progress we've made here huge great strides But for some reason it is taking quite a while to filter into the community and um, it also shows the bounds of awareness and how awareness campaigns on their own are potentially useless really and that we're well past that now we needed that in the early 2000s and i think australia did very well but we have a long way to go now when it comes to service delivery listening and hearing and responding to men so Yes, 75% of 76, I think, in 2019 of the suicides in Australia were men.
1: Zach, is that fairly consistent with other countries around the world, isn't it?
2: Which is intriguing. You look at any Western nation and it's pretty similar percentage here or there. So it's very interesting to consider how this same set of circumstances can lead to really similar data in, in very different countries. So, I think that that is the reason that there's been a lot of interest. It's also that, as I said, this ripple effect that we talk about when you're losing that many men and it's continuing to increase is, is really getting to communities. It's really triggering a lot of people into action. and you know I get drowned in emails, left, right, and center with people asking what they can do, how they can help. But sadly, for some reason, it takes a crisis people start to respond. It takes it takes a death in the community or family. and I'm hoping that we can get to the point where people will listen, not only if you have lived experience, but if you just want to get this shit going.
1: Yeah, how do you get to the people who've never heard the phrase lived experience? They're just living their life. Exactly. So, I've read a few things and heard a few statistics on the news and other sources about how men and help-seeking, so you always see these things, and I don't want to generalise too much, but that women are more likely to ask for help or use a helpline or go to their GP if they're struggling with their mental health or to ask about someone else's mental health and what they can do. So what can you tell us about men and their help-seeking style? Sure.
2: So as you said, it's hard to not generalize, especially when we often turn gender into a binary. It means that you've got, or a dichotomy even, it's like women are like this and men are like this and that's how it's going to be. I do within men research. I try to really stay away from sex or gender differences work because it's a cul-de-sac. And all it does is goes, oh, there's a difference. And we just continue to perpetuate that as if it means anything to anybody. It seems to be of interest to the media for some reason, but I, I much prefer to, to show that there is huge diversity within men, you know, whether it be age groups or ethnicities or sexualities, there's a lot going on there. But on the whole, yes, we can fundamentally say that men are about a third as less likely to seek help Uh, for mental health conditions specifically, used to be around half. So we're making progress there compared to women. But the thing to note really is that more men are seeking help than ever before. We've had about a 10 to 15% increase in the number of men seeking help for mental health concerns in the past decade. Movember, You OK? Headspace, all of these, Beyond Blue especially, have done great work in promoting help-seeking as as something that is hopefully fundamentally masculine. It's something, you know, looking after yourself should be a masculine trait. But again, there's a lot of of self-reliance, of stoicism, of desire for control, uh, which men are not necessarily willing to give up, which is potentially limiting their help-seeking. But I think we need to remember on the flip side that you can't just blame men for not seeking help. There's a reason that they're not seeking help. And the reason in my eyes is because services are not catering to their needs, are not responding to what they want. If you offer them something that works, Movember has thankfully created out of nothing, a movement that speaks to men. And if I look at the whole mental health system, (laughs) there's very few occasions where I can find that. Therapy has been largely feminized over time. Verbal communication and vulnerability and talking about emotions has been deemed a female thing to do for some reason. And so men are ostracized and they walk into my therapy setting and they go, this isn't for me. This wasn't made for me. This is foreign and I don't belong here. And what we need to do is adapt our ways of working and go, hey, guys, you're welcome here. You belong here and we'll do it your way.
1: You said that over the past decade, help seeking's increased. What were some of the settings or what's been successful about some of those settings? So as you say, Movember is a very man-friendly brand and one of the few, I would say, that does that successfully. But what do people, people meaning community clinicians, how can they make it inviting for men, as you say, to make it clear that they belong there? Or do they have to go anywhere at all? Should we be going to them?
2: so first off the fact that there's been an increase i don't think is down to anything service providers have done or i wouldn't be where i am now and, and i find i'm very lucky that that my fellow psychologists and counselors and social workers are very again to have this discussion they're not defensive and they understand the importance of adapting their work because they're witnessing it they're witnessing the dropout they're witnessing You know, the amount of clinicians who see uh, 70, 80% female clients and are wondering what's going on, it's bad for business. So that's how I sell it as well. It's like, we've got a huge untapped market here who needs our help. So offer them something that works. So I think that the messaging has worked really well. And that's why lots of men and also the whole MBS situation and the fact that Medicare, you know, came into being and uh, we got the 10 sessions, which is now 20 sessions to see a mental health professional, which is awesome the best in the world, fundamentally, is great news. And I think so that's access, better access, you know, literally has led to more men seeking help because money is a massive issue. And we've done enough research now to know that that ties in very heavily with masculinity and need to be a provider. And I'm not going to spend time on myself when I can spend it on looking after others. But I can't really point to very many long-term successful movements or services. I think Headspace has worked hard at trying to be male-friendly for young guys they've had a couple of campaigns whether or not they've missed the mark or hit the mark there there's still not as many men who should be going to headspace, so work left to be done but I think that the main movement has been grassroots has been community led and that needs to filter into professional services so we've got things like Mr. Perfect and Banksy project and man's walk and all of these awesome dudes coming out and going let's have a barbecue let's do a social you know social group with 20 guys who are socially isolated that type of informal support is life-saving fundamentally
1: yeah i've been reading more about different surfing groups and things like that where those informal gatherings they then are bringing the mental health training and literacy i guess into that which then would take them on to treatment or more likelihood to open up for treatment what about, you said before about vulnerability and talking about your emotions somehow becoming a feminized over the years, which absolutely has. So what is modern masculinity or what should it be? What is it for you? So I think that what it
2: comes down to is flexibility. That's always been my, my mantra when it comes to this stuff. I don't want a male firefighter to suddenly start talking about vulnerability when he's in the middle of a fire. It's not the time or place. It's after when he comes out, when he tries to deal with the trauma of what he's just seen rather than bottling it up for months at a time. It's a matter of going, there's a time and a place for everything. Stoicism, self-reliance, independence are awesome. They are really useful to you sometimes and they are really harmful to you at others In saying that, there's plenty of things about traditional masculinity which I'm happy to just get rid of, like misogyny, power over women, you know, just all of these these ideas of the fact that you need to maintain a sense of, of control over others I think is problematic. Homophobia is really, really a very strong ingrained traditional norm when it comes to masculinity and we need to be done with that, I think. But what we're moving towards is understanding that when I'm in therapy with someone and they tell me they're an impulsive risk-taking type person, I'm like, all right, sweet. Let's use that to our advantage. You don't want to be here. Take a risk on me. yeah. You don't want to do this task when you go home. If it's exposure, if you've got anxiety, for instance, take a risk. Give it a go. Leverage masculinity to our advantage. So modern masculinity is is not doing away with the old. It's about opening it up. It's about allowing in more options, more diversity, more, you know, ways of being and relating because men have the capacity for greatness when it comes to this stuff and uh, just letting go of that belief that they have to try to achieve something which is fundamentally unattainable. You know, there's this great quote by a guy called Joseph Vandalow who came up with this theory called precarious manhood or masculinity where he said that masculinity is hard won and easily lost. And he showed that by getting guys, it's an incredible experiment. He got guys to either tie knots in rope or do a very similar thing, but it was plaiting hair. So it was the same task, but it was one or the other. And then straight after he got them to punch a bag. And those who had done the hair tying were much more aggressive straight after. And we're much more likely to want to feel that their masculinity had been attacked and had been taken away from them. And that's where the the idea about man cards and masculine capital, all of this stuff, that it can be taken away from me. And that's where we see violence going through the roof. That's where we see a backlash when we talk about men seeking help or whatever it may be. There's so much shame around having something stripped away from me. We need to realize that, in fact, we're giving men. So many more tools to help them live happier, healthier, longer lives and and to be better fathers and colleagues and employees and whatever it may be. So it's a matter of selling to them. We have things for you that are going to be useful to you, not lecturing them, which is really not worked or nagged.
1: I was going to ask you about the research that Movember did last year, which was about that reassuringly three quarters of men felt like they had at least one person they could talk to if they were in need. But then around 40% said actually they regretted opening up, I guess because of the response that they got. So what sort of advice would you give to people if A man does open up and you know they want to access the tools that you're talking about then what's helpful and not so helpful
2: i I wrote a piece based on that where i spoke about the idea that we tell men to open up more but are we ready to listen and so it's really the idea of and that's where the modern masculinity stuff comes in i I talk about it as if it's a, a teething process it's like a it's a gender reckoning of sorts where we're going all right We're going to pick and choose because women as well are perpetuating this issue that many women that I know and that I speak to want their husbands and the fathers of their children to be traditionally masculine in some ways. They want them to provide and protect to an extent. And then they also want them to be vulnerable and emotional with the children. And it's like, it's very difficult to deal with that mixed messaging. And I think men are trying to find their way through that. And we need to give them a better lighting of the path. Because you know, femininity and, and women, especially, have spent a very long time exploring what it means to be a woman. You know, that's what feminism did in the, in the 60s and 70s. We're now starting to catch up and being like, oh, we should probably reflect on what this thing is and how to deal with it because men are literally dying because of the fact that they don't understand their place. There's all this talk about you have all of this power. And I can tell you, you know, working clinically, that the vast majority of men feel powerless. And so regardless of the reality, you know, which is that they have largely more opportunities than women very often, they don't feel that way. And that is fair and needs to be understood and heard by all of us. But when it comes to having a a guy in front of you, who's taken the steps to, to open up, there's a lot of belief that we need to like jump on and provide solutions immediately. And that's just not the case. And there's also that trope that men just want Practical outcomes. It's not true. And if anything, that requires asking the man if that's what he wants and knowing your bounds, if you're not a clinician, especially in trying to suddenly fix the problem. You can't do that. And sometimes these guys just need to get it out. There just needs to be a rant. So I spend a lot of my days training clinicians about how to respond to anger, for instance, and the fact that it's a condoned emotion for many men and and we need to be able to sit with it within the bounds of safety, obviously. But stop trying to dig beneath it stop trying to work out what's going on here he can just be angry and you'll get to the emotion eventually he'll tell you what's going on but just let him let him go for a bit but it really comes down to providing men with the time and place that's appropriate everyone goes to me how do i have a mental health conversation with my mate and i say don't have a conversation just just chat with him you know get to a place where he feels comfortable to eventually deal with whatever the issue is, but don't sit him down like it's an intervention. If you're playing with a ball in the park or your this shoulder-to-shoulder activity, which we talk about a lot at Movember, which often you know, especially for young guys, is much more comfortable than face-to-face. Whether it's pool, ping pong, the pub, whatever it is, allow them to just talk normally. Talk to them as you do with banter, but don't be afraid to push through some of that discomfort. And when I say, you know, have these conversations, I always start by going, don't say, how are you doing? Or are you okay? Because you're going to get a grunt. Instead, trying to, to shift it on its head and, and being specific and saying, hey, man, I've noticed you're drinking a bit more. What's going on? So it's something that you've picked up on. It's behavioral. It's practical. And they'll respond.
1: And the shoulder-to-shoulder is a term that we've heard a lot. So what you mean by that is literally shoulder-to-shoulder. So you're not pressuring on the eye contact. I'm not dragging my chair up across the dinner table to stare you down as I ask how you are. You're sitting in a car or you're, yeah, as you say, at the pub or at the park or doing something where you're not just zeroing in on each other and looking into the depths of your soul.
2: I literally had to untrain myself as a psychologist because that's all we, you know... I also studied drama back in the day and I remember I, I was so uncomfortable with eye contact. I had to really push myself through it and I got very good at it. And now I've had to just undo that all because it's very pressuring for many men to have, especially a female gaze or another male gaze. It can induce all different types of feelings. And there, in saying that, again, there's heaps of diversity. There are lots of men who, if I don't give them eye contact, get really shitty. And you know, they want that connection and they, they thrive off it. And then there are other guys, if they're talking about suicidality to me, they're somewhat ashamed or afraid and they're looking at the floor and there's nothing wrong with that. They're getting it out. We can deal with it later and they always come around and we always have have much more in-depth discussions once they've kind of danced around the issue. There's a lot of peacocking that goes on in therapy between men, I think, in particular. I think that men really want to suss out what they can get away with often. They also want to work out if they can trust you. And so, while it might take time, and I say this to all clinicians that I work with, it might take time to build up that rapport. What happens once you've got it is that the shit hits the fan. It moves very quickly and it's a roller coaster. And I know that many therapists love that because while those first three sessions, you get nothing, <laughs> once you get to the fourth, oh, I've just made a year's worth of progress in a session. So these guys are ready, they've just got to work it out. And that shoulder to shoulder activity, when I was in Darwin, I did a lot of like walking therapy with guys, played pool with guys in in a therapy room. There's heaps of ways that we need to break down that talking about mental health has to be a serious sit-down official conversation, you know. It doesn't work like that.
1: Yeah, maybe we're using all these terms too readily and actually just need to stop talking about suicide prevention and mental health and just say what's going on in your life, what's keeping you up at night
2: they shouldn't be separated. It's really weird. And I think we're hopefully now, especially the whole of 2020, everyone's so much more willing to talk about what's happening in their life. And it's the blurred between what is mental health and mental illness. We've got a very clear understanding that there's no tipping point necessarily. There's just days or minutes where you just jump between them. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that the notion that it's more normal than not to experience... Depressive symptoms, anxiety, whatever it may be—that is, that is humanity. So it's not—it's not something to shy away from anymore.
1: Absolutely. Have you noticed a um, increase in telehealth with all the COVID move to Zoom and things like that? Have you seen people more willing to do that?
2: Again, there's a huge stereotype that I don't know where it started. It kind of links in very heavily with these ideas around masculinity. But there was always been the stereotype that men love phone and you know telehealth type stuff and they love being at a distance it's confidential it's much more comfortable for them and we know from lifeline data (laughs) that men just don't call you know in comparison to women so call bullshit on that from the outset the other thing what i've found is that i've had a lot of guys who are very comfortable and very happy with telehealth there are some very key benefits which is that they can do it from work often if they happen to be at work they can do it out of hours it's great for me i don't really feel that the connection is sullied in any way i think that. The first five minutes might be weird and then you just forget but I think that we need to do more research in understanding what men want and giving them more options if some of them really like telehealth then that that option needs to be readily available to them and I think regional and rural guys especially I've worked in rural settings and there's one psych for 150,000 people it's like what is happening here so some are really into it some might not be Again, just the same as as women, but just having the option is great now. And the fact that we progressed this so quickly in Australia, the fact that I've now got rebates for it, no complaints at all when it comes to that.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. I guess that's similar to what you were saying about that your research is focused on men or looking with a a male lens, but there's such diversity in that. But having the accessibility and the availability of the different options, because even the shoulder to shoulder stuff, some people will be dead against walking and would open up over a game pool, but
2: not everyone... Yeah, that hate sport and that love gaming. The idea that men like cars and girls and it's just like, stop it. Just call it a day on that. Because the more we perpetuate that, the more that men believe that that is the case. And well, that's what they should be. Exactly. And that's that's where we're finding the most problematic behaviour is that men don't believe in this stuff. They don't believe that they should make more money or have better jobs than women or whatever it may be, you know, that, they're, that straight men are better than gay men. There's just a pressure. There's a pressure. It's not a belief. There's a pressure. And so you'll find the vast majority of guys understand that this isn't the case, but they still go, but someone's telling me, someone's whispering in my ear constantly that this is the case. And the media and family units and schools have a huge responsibility to not perpetuate the issue, but to purposefully undo it (laughs) by promoting positive education and, and making it very clear what men can and should be.
1: And what about creating safe spaces for men to do that? So I'm thinking specifically for all of our listeners who are LivingWorks trainers around the world. So what works in terms of peer support environments? Do you see more success with education if it's men teaching men, for example? What are some safe spaces for men to learn more and feel comfortable about that?
2: Well, all I can do is draw on what I know and the programs that I know work. And I think mates in construction, for instance you know, t- to all of our international viewers. It's it's a very Australian-based idea, but it's not not hard to see it, how it could be replicated elsewhere.
1: In the um, States now too, I think in California.
2: Yeah. Awesome, that's great news. And I think it's best to start in high risk groups. And that's why it's mates in construction, mates in mining, those types of industries where male suicide is way too high. So, I really like their approach. I think that leaning on one another and improving social support and, and very clearly having not just lip service within the organisation but active, consistent support is really great. And having your superiors keyed in and socially modelling this stuff is everything. We've also got, you know, things like Tomorrow Man and Man Cave in Australia, and I know there are plenty in the States and in the UK and in Ireland, around... Um, going into schools and teaching men about masculinity and mental health and what it looks like they're successful but there's a hell of a lot of work <laughs> that has to be done there when there are social pressures and identity formation and all of that going on they're led by by men mostly and I think going into sporting communities as well is very useful there but you know female role models have a huge ability to change the game here i think that especially at all boys schools for instance boys don't have any understanding of of what women are or or, you know they've got teachers to an extent and that's where the role modeling can come into play but it's a non-intimate non-sexualized relationship built on respect which i think is really really useful there safe spaces full stop should be built into all of those organizations and institutions that exist you know you look at politics in australia and it's just like there's no Ability for anyone to gain support until they need to go and leave. That's mm. exactly what happened here. You know, we've got so many people who just go, "I can't do it anymore." It's like there must have been an earliest point where we could have given you the support you needed, but no, you need to work. You know, twenty hours a day. That's just how it's going to be. Rights of passage need to end. The idea that you need to just live up to a certain standard, you need to slay yourself for work, and you need to give up everything for your family and we need to shift that on its head and realize that if you look after yourself that is doing a good job that is being a good father because longevity and reducing that 6 year gap in life expectancy between men and women will make everyone a lot happier i think
1: exactly what are you most hopeful about when it comes to suicide prevention in men
2: i'm very hopeful and we are we are making such strides but there are so many there are so many obstacles that exist within our society, I would say that I'm most hopeful about about our youth and about our next generation. Just going and doing community events at schools and and universities and hearing the the literacy and the awareness of these young guys, you couldn't imagine this stuff in our fathers and grandfathers. I'm hoping that the younger generation actually educates the older generation, the older generation listen. That's kind of what I'm seeing because we've got 45 to 55-year-old men dying at insane rates. When it comes to suicide in Australia, the proportions are are massive, and that group it's kind of followed them throughout time because they went through you know an economic recession early on when they're in their twenties trying to find jobs, and so they're the fathers now, and, and I'm hoping that their children will model up, which is kind of a strange concept, but I have I have a lot of hope for you know a new generation of dads bringing boys into the world. I have endless hope for the women <laughs> continuing to support men. I've I see it left, right, and center, and I'm hoping that that burden gets reduced over time as well because it's extremely taxing for many women and they want to see men thrive and allowing men to to have their own self-awareness, capacity and reflection to do that will be great. But mostly I guess I'm hopeful about each life that we can save and it's too easy to get pulled into the sensationalism of the huge numbers, you know, we're losing one man a minute in the world, you know, it's 500,000 a year to suicide. And if you get dragged into that, it's, it's overwhelming. And everyone always asks, how do you continue? How do you not take this home? You know, all of those questions are the number one things when you go to a dinner party, if you work in this space. But my answer is always that even if it's once a year, once every two years, and I, and I get to really make sure that you know, my words or the, the context that I put someone into connection with can keep them here and keep them aware of their worth and improve their desire to live. That's enough for me.
1: Absolutely. I think I couldn't end our conversation on a better point. I think that is what keeps us all going. And I think it takes a lot of work. And as you say, it's not just about the interventions and the conversations that are happening around mental health, but all those systems and structures and belief systems around it that need to shift as well. But like you, I'm hopeful. So thank you very much for talking to us today. And we very much appreciate the work that you do and that Movember does and have had a great Movember seeing all the Mo's around town. So thank you very much for the work you do and for your time today.
2: No problem. Thanks a lot, Kim.
0: If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love you to subscribe on the usual channels. Write a five-star review and most importantly, share it with your family, friends and colleagues on social media. Tagging LivingWorks. This podcast is brought to you by LivingWorks, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. A reminder that if this episode has brought up tough emotions for you, talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you're feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you.